We're going to continue this morning on our journey through the book of Acts. Neil last week uh, took us up to partway through chapter 6. Chapter 6 is where the apostles appoint seven men who are going to be responsible for looking after the distribution of the food to ensure that everybody gets what they should get in terms of food and distribution. And this morning, we're going to continue through the rest of chapter six and chapter seven, looking at the story of Stephen, who was one of the men that was appointed to fulfill that role. Now, the reading that we have this morning is quite a long reading. Last week was a short reading, and I've make, made up for that this week um, and taken the time that Neil didn't use in his reading last week to have an even longer reading. The reading, we're going to go through the rest of chapter six and all of chapter seven. Chapter seven is really uh, uh, Luke telling us uh, Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin in response to the charges that are placed against him. And it is worth us hearing all that Stephen has to say. In particular, what I'd like you to pay attention to is how many places, place names Stephen mentions during that talk, particularly places that are outside of Israel. And we'll come back in a moment to see why that is so important. Jumi and Jill are going to help me this morning. They're going to share the reading between them. So if they can unmute themselves, Jumi is going to start us off at chapter 6 and verse 8, reading through to chapter 7, 29, verse 29. And then Jill will immediately take over and see us through to the end of chapter 7. So ladies, when you're ready, if you could start the reading, that would be brilliant. Okay. Good morning, church. Um, now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him from the Sanhedrin. Sorry, before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stop speaking against his holy, this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked in intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Chapter seven. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans um, and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, for 400 years your descendants 
will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their, on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learnt about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Chechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Chechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he, cared, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. 
I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected, with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself, through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon and stars. This agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations of God. The nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favour and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. 
Thanks, Jill and Jumi. That was brilliantly read and it was a, a long section to get through, but it gives us a full picture of the ministry of Stephen. Today, we're looking at the challenge to religion and we're doing that through the lens of Stephen's very short ministry and then the rest of his life as we see it here. We don't know that much about Stephen. He pops up in chapter six and as we've just seen by the end of chapter seven, his story is over. We know that he was appointed to distribute the food and that he was a man full of faith, wisdom, grace, power, and the Holy Spirit. He wasn't one of the apostles. He wasn't anointed to go and preach and teach. But we see that someone who's full of the Holy Spirit, power and wisdom. Well, I don't think Stephen could help himself. The Bible tells us that he did much more than just distribute the food. Chapter eight says, now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. In distributing the food and performing these signs, he very quickly became, was drawn to the attention of the religious leaders of the day. And then we see got into conflict and argument and dispute with them. For these religious leaders, well, there were four key symbols to the Jewish faith in, that, in this period, period, and that was the temple, the law, the Holy Land, and their national ethnic identity. And somehow God was in and amongst and moving and intertwined with these four key symbols. We don't have to get too far down the list. In fact, the first one was enough to cause these religious people to be irate because for them, the temple was the place where God's presence resided. It was the place where heaven and earth touched. Well, Stephen going about preaching and teaching and talking about Jesus and what happened and performing signs and wonders amongst the people, not in the temple, but out on the streets amongst the people. Even the apostles up until that point had maintained most of their teaching uh, was in and around the temple. But here is Stephen performing these signs and wonders out among the people, effectively demonstrating that God was not contained and confined within the temple. Well, this was enough to drive these religious people quite crazy, really, and be so cross and annoyed because it was undermining their position, it was undermining their traditions and their faith, it was disrupting the community. And so they had Stephen arrested and taken to the Sanhedrin. What those religious people heard when Stephen was talking, that somehow their practices, their history, everything that had gone before was somehow irrelevant and unimportant and was no longer about what God was doing and somehow should be confined in history, almost as if it had never happened. But actually, that wasn't the message at all that the early church were giving. In fact, it was something completely different to that. Tom Wright, in his commentary on the book of Acts, says, contrary to what the religious people believed, the early Christian claim was that the God of our ancestors, in fulfillment of the purposes for which he gave the law and the temple in the first place, is now doing a new thing. That thought that the God of our ancestors... They were all Jews, the new Christians, the, the early Christians, and the religious people that they were talking to. They were all of the Jewish faith. They were all of the Jewish nation. And so Stephen and the early church basically are saying, the God, the God that you serve is the God that we serve. And what has gone before isn't irrelevant, but has been part of the journey to bring us to this point. History has been building to this moment of the fulfillment in the birth and death of Jesus Christ. God is doing something new. God wants to continue on his journey and he invites you to come on this journey with us. It was a moment of transition, but it was a moment of transition that the religious people became stuck in. They can't equate 
what they know with what is now happening and what they're being asked to do. 20 years ago, Claire and I were, had just been married and we were living down in the south of England and we were given the opportunity to move back up to, up to the north. And so I wanted to move to the town of Glossop where we now live, which is where I had grown up as a child. And uh, Claire had never been here. So we decided that one weekend I would bring Claire up to Glossop and show her um, what Glossop is like and see if she wanted to move here. Now, from where we were living down in Surrey, there were really two routes we could have taken to come to Glossop. The most logical from where we were would have been to come up the M6, round the M60. And that would have been getting off the M60 at a town called Denton, which isn't the most picture and pretty town. And certainly 20 years ago, I think on the high street, there were more boarded up shops than shops that were open. And we would have gone through Denton, continuing on, on our journey, we would have come to Hyde. Hyde isn't really known for much apart from the picture that you can see in the top right of your screen, which is the surgery of Dr. Harold Shipman, which is on Market Street in Hyde. Harold Shipman was the most prolific serial killer, sadly, that the world has ever known. We'd have continued through Hyde and then arrived at Hattersley, which is the picture at the top center of your screen. Hattersley isn't a particularly wealthy area, it's a very deprived area. It's where the two police officers, female police officers were shot not too long ago, but that hadn't happened then. What it was known for at the time was it was the place where the Moors murderers, uh, Hindley and Brady lived and carried out their atrocities decades before. We then continued through Hattersley, come out the other side, go past a derelict burnt out mill that you could see at the bottom left of your screen, and then we would arrive in Glossop. Now, strangely, that wasn't the way that I decided I'd bring Claire into Glossop for the first time. What we did was track across the country so we could go up the M1. We then turned and spent an hour and 20 minutes driving across the Peak District National Park, which you can see in the center of your screen there. Beautiful hills, countryside, forest roads. And as we crested over the top of the moors, there is Glossop nestled down amongst the hills and the valleys. Why did I do that? Well, because we know that the journey to a destination can often affect the way that we view that place that we arrive at. The journey is quite important to a place, but it gives us a context of where it is. For the religious people of the day, all they could see was the moment that they were in and the view that they had on their religious beliefs and their understanding of God was based on the journey that they had seen and they had come on and that their ancestors had come on over the last one and a half or so thousand years. And they were stuck in this moment, only able to see this moment in relation to the journey that they'd come on. It was a little bit like, have you ever been booking a holiday? and you're booking it in a town that you don't know, but there's always that little button, a map, and you can click on the map and you can see the town or the hotel that you're going to be sent out. A bit like we've got here, and in the center of the screen is Hook Norton, which is a town that Claire used to live in years ago. But really, a picture like that doesn't really help you because it gives you no context. You don't know where it is in the world or in the country. You don't know how you get there. What you need to do is click on, there's normally a little zoom out button just at the bottom of the screen. And if you click that button, you zoom out and you begin to see a bigger picture. You see where the place that you're going to is in relation to either where you live or a place that you recognize. Somehow it suddenly gives it context. You know where you are in relation to it, how you'll get there, how long it will take you. Once you can zoom out and see the bigger picture, it helps you to understand a smaller picture. And so when Stephen is asked to answer the charges of going speaking against the temple 
and against the law. What he does is he wants to zoom out and give the people that he's talking to a bigger picture of where they are. And he does that by retelling their own history back to them. He's going to walk them back over their journey to where they are so that they can see a bigger picture of what God is doing. He starts with Abraham at the beginning and he says that while he was still in Mesopotamia, God spoke to him. And he talks about the journey and the relationship between God and Abraham as they go on this journey to this new land. He talks about Jacob and Joseph and Joseph was sold into slavery, but he reminds them that God was with him. Where? In Egypt. He then talks about Moses. Moses really should have died as a child in Egypt, but God intervened and time and time again, God spoke to Moses and used him to, excuse me, to rescue his people. Speaking to Moses through the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. What Stephen does is repeat place after place after place. Difficult place names, places far from Jerusalem, outside of Israel. Places that to the people in the room would have been places of struggle and trial and trauma and death. Difficult places. And then he says to them, all through your history, God has still been at work outside of this place you're concerned that god is moving outside of the temple but god has always moved outside of this place god has always been with his people in the difficult places in the hard times what you see happening now is a continuation of what god has always been doing god is doing something new but god has always been doing something new and as if to make sure if they haven't got the message he pulls out one story in in verse 41 he says, there was a time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands has made. Of all the stories of the children of Israel, he calls out this one story where they built an idol, having getting fed up with following God and Moses. They built an idol and he says, they reveled in worshipping something that they had made with their own hands. The people in the room knew the scriptures. They knew the Psalms. I wonder if they remembered psalm 106 where the psalmist writes they exchange the glory of god for the image of a bull that eats grass the psalmist reminding the people that they exchange worshiping and following god for something that they made with their own hands something that was powerless to save stephen was telling the people that they're in danger of worshiping the temple of god and not the God of the temple. They were going to hold on so tightly to something, something that had been good in their past, something that had come around on their journey, but they were going to continue to hold on to that than to carry on following and leading where God was taking them on this journey. He was reminding them that sometimes you have to let go of one thing in order to pick up something new. He zoomed out, he's given the big picture, and now towards the end of his speech, he tends to zoom back in. He's told them that God has always been acting outside of this place, just as he is now. And then he also reminds them that actually resistance to what God is doing is nothing new. He says, is there ever a prophet that your ancestors did not persecute? Every time God raises someone up to lead his people, there is resistance. There always has been. But then he zooms back in and makes it a personal challenge. And he tells them that you are in danger of doing exactly the same thing the religious people were worried that god was operating outside the temple 
but he reminds him God has always done that. God has always been doing something new. God is the God of the new. And he reminds them to ensure that they continue to follow God and not something, not some ideas or something made with human hands. And so us, for us here sat watching our screens all over the country and the world this morning, what does this mean to us? Well, in order to know what it means to us, very often, as it, with most Bible stories, you have to try and find where are you, what character are you within the story? And with most Bible stories, there's normally two sides, the side we want to be on and the side we don't really want to be on. And one side we see people that are committed to following Jesus, whatever the cost, wherever it leads. Yet, on the other hand, we see people that are resistant to let go of something that they've held precious for so long. Afraid to let go of something that's been with them for so long, even something that was good. But maybe in order to move on, they have to be prepared to release it, to follow Jesus. It's also worth remembering that Stephen is talking to a community that is going through a process of change and upheaval and uncertainty. And people weren't quite sure how things were going to pan out. Well, in 2020, I don't think that's that hard for any of us, really, to imagine what that's like. We're going through a period of change in community and society. So many things have changed, the way that we have to work, the way that we shop, the way, the, the way that we meet with friends and family, even the way we meet together as church and we worship and we express our faith. Could you imagine if when we had Neil's commissioning service in January, Neil has stood up and said, right, we're not going to meet here together on a Sunday. What are we going to do? In fact, we're not going to meet together at all. What we're going to do is you'll log onto your computer, we'll have a chat, and then you can go and carry on with your day. We'll just, we'll just meet on the internet. I'm sure some of us would have found that very difficult to comprehend and understand. We could have come up with reasons why it wouldn't work, and maybe even come up with some Bible verses that would uh, explain why we shouldn't be doing that. But here we are having to learn and accept new ideas, new ways of doing things. You know why I don't accept for a moment that God created this pandemic. I believe that God has still got a plan and a purpose to be outworked while we go through these situations, while we go through this moment of change. God plan, God's plans aren't on hold. But maybe it means us being prepared to let go of something in order to pick up something else. The situation and story of Stephen reminds us that God is doing something new, but God has always been doing something new. He will continue to be the God of doing new things, these blessings are new every morning. God is able to do more than we can hope or dream. God is continually going to surprise us by doing something new. And as we continue on our journey with him, it will take us to difficult places. It will take us to places that seem hard. It will take us to places that seem God could never be here. But God has always been with his people, even in the difficult places. And it reminds us that as we go to those new places, if we're prepared to, God will give us the words to speak. He will give us the actions to take. As we've already seen this morning, there is a cost to following Jesus. For some people and for Stephen, it could even be the cost of their lives. For the rest of us, it can be being prepared to choose and prioritize following God over the other things that we've picked up on our journeys. 
It's easy when you see a PowerPoint slide that says a challenge to religion to instantly think of those people that are a little bit more religious than us. Those people who worship and express their faith in a way that maybe we would find a bit too traditional or wouldn't fit or sit with how we think things should be. But actually, the challenge to religion is a challenge to me. A challenge to ask me, am I prepared to let go of things I've held dear? Am I prepared to continue on my journey with Jesus, whatever the cost, wherever it may lead me? So that together we can continue in following Jesus. We can continue in reaching a world that desperately needs Jesus more than it is ever at any other time in our lifetimes. We need to continue the journey, being prepared to let go in order to be able to pick up what God has for us. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you have a plan and a purpose for each and every one of us. We thank you that wherever we find ourselves, we know that you are there and that you have gone before us to prepare the way. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we continue living our lives in these changing, difficult circumstances and times, that we will remember that you are still at work, that your plans and purposes are not on hold, but each and every day, you want us to find ways to express your love and your grace and your joy and your hope to those around us. I pray that we'll be filled with your spirit and power and wisdom and grace, and that we'll understand what it means to be followers of Jesus in this context, at this moment, and at this time. Amen.